Listener Production. Hi, I'm Amy Dale and I'm not a lawyer. But since working at the Law Society, I've met and worked with plenty of them. And I've also met countless people who need help understanding the law and, more importantly, knowing how to find the right lawyer. That's why we've created this podcast, to help make the law accessible for you, for me, for everyone. No jargon, no law speak, I promise. Just me diving into the most common legal problems to help you make the best decisions possible. Welcome to Lawfully Explained. Today, I'm very excited to be sitting down with Michaela Mate from the very superbly named Mate Lawyers. Uh, and I think it's a great name because also often when people run into legal trouble, I'm sure they need a friend. You would probably say they That's need right. a lawyer. Yes. Uh, so good thing is that you're both. And <laughs> we're going to talk today about all different kinds of traffic laws, what are the most common ways that people get into trouble and what are some things that people need to know if they either think they've broken the law or they know that they've broken the law. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Michaela. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. And as you said, I'm your mate in the law. So I want to firstly start by asking, I think I want to start with car accidents because there's a lot of things I want to ask about, which is seatbelts, drink driving, speeding, using a phone when driving. But first of all, looking at car accidents, What are some of the most common legal mistakes that you see people making at the scene of a car accident? Sure. So obviously at the scene of an accident, it's a state of heightened emotion. You're very overwhelmed. But the most common mistake that I see is people actually leaving the scene. And this just causes a lot of pain later. You know, police might be searching for you or the like. The best piece of advice I could possibly give you is just to stay at the scene, even though you might feel overwhelmed or you might feel guilty or or whatever the case might be. That's the biggest mistake. But there are other common mistakes as well, which include failing to provide particulars. So it is your obligation to provide your details, for example, your license details, your name, your phone or contact number to the other driver that was involved in the accident, even if you're not at fault, and also to the police. If the police ask you to identify yourself, then you actually must do it. It's an offence not to provide your identification. And in certain circumstances, you could be arrested for it, which is just creates a whole world of pain for no reason. So it's really important to provide your details at the scene of a crash to the other driver and the police. Something other people fail to do is failing to stop and render assistance. If you know that somebody is injured or they look like they're injured, then you have an obligation to actually render them assistance, whether that be by calling the ambulance or just checking they're okay. That is also an offence that you can be charged with if it's determined that you should have helped them. That's really interesting because I um, I didn't really know of like sort of good Samaritan laws yeah, and so if that applied here. That's one of them. And the offence is failing to stop and render assistance. And the test is ought reasonably to have known that somebody might have been or was injured as a result of the car accident or that somebody might have actually passed away as a result of the accident. So it's important to know, obviously, in the heat of the moment, that might be something that you might not want to do. But it is important to remember that you should always provide assistance, as you say, as the Good Samaritan. But also there is that legal obligation there to do that. What happens if someone hits my car and then just takes off? 
ultimately, it depends on whether they're insured, whether they can be tracked down. There could be CCTV footage, but ultimately that's the matter for the police. So just make sure you get as many details as you can in the heat of the moment um, and take it to the police and they really deal with it from there in terms of investigating or assisting with insurance and things like that. If they said to you when after they hit you, oh, I don't have insurance, what should you do? Yeah, I still think it's important to report it to the police. That could cause them to be charged with driving an uninsured vehicle, but that's it's really a matter for the police to look into. Do you often have clients who have panicked in a moment and Oh, definitely. Yeah. Take it off. Taken off. Yeah, I've seen people captured on CCTV footage roll over the top of someone's bonnet and that person's driven away because they've panicked and they don't know what to do and it's not a situation that you find yourself in every day. So, of course, you're not used to feeling like that, but it's really important that you do actually stop, calm yourself down and, yeah, identify yourself, see if anyone needs help and just follow police direction. In a few of the examples you've given, you've talked about the importance of getting legal advice about these instances and when things go wrong. One example I'm thinking of with that is if you are involved in an accident and you know that it was your fault is it better to not admit that fault at the scene? Yeah, that's a tricky question, I think, because it can go both ways. It can be that you've admitted guilt or you've made an admission that could be taken higher than what you actually mean it to be. Or alternatively, it could be seen as a a level of compliance and remorse, you know, compliance with the police, you make admissions, full and frank admissions, and you're remorseful. So it's it's a little bit tricky in terms of making admissions at the scene. Certainly be compliant and be polite, especially where, well, in any accident circumstance or where there's police involved, certainly be compliant with them. But you don't really need to tell them your whole life story, if that makes sense. And, you know, just answer their questions as best as you can. But keep in mind that what you are saying could be construed in a different way than what you mean it. Now, when people are first getting their license, we're all taught about the sort of many, 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 many road rules that assist. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot. There's a lot. Everyone can remember when they were first learning to drive, uh, having to learn and understand all the rules. And obviously people think of obvious ones like obey the speed limit, wear a seatbelt, don't drink, drive. But what are some of the most common offences that people may not realise they've committed? Really often, the courts will see offences such as driving suspended or even disqualified. And that usually arises out of someone being suspended by Service New South Wales for something like um, too many demerit points, or it might be that there's a particular test called a driver knowledge test that they might need to complete. And they don't often get the notices, they change address, or for whatever reason, they're not notified. And the police pull them over and that's a really common offence that they may not necessarily know that they're doing. It's a difficult one because if you don't know, then you, you know, you're not necessarily aware that you're doing something wrong. But there's various laws around that and it's actually quite difficult to get out of that as long as Service New South Wales can prove that they've sent the letter to an address that was the last correct address, then the onus really falls back onto the driver. So the courts really look at our licences as a privilege in comparison to a right. So the onus is on us to check all the time. So people can use the Service New South Wales app to check how many demerit points they have. Are they close to reaching the limit? 
is there any sort of hold or suspension or disqualification on their license that they're not aware of? And I would suggest that people do that. Obviously, it's not something that we probably do regularly, but I think more people should because it can stop them from committing these offences that ultimately they do end up on your record if you're convicted of them. And it's very expensive and time consuming and difficult to deal with. And it sounds like from what you're saying, the courts do not have a lot of patience for the like, I'm bad at life admin excuse. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that just doesn't fly. I mean, it kind of depends on the situation, like any kind of criminal offence really. But there are laws that say effectively the onus is on the driver or the person holding the licence to actually check regularly that their licence is in the correct state and valid I want to also ask about that on the onus being on the license holder. And a lot of that that you've talked about is relating to your ability as a driver or Mm. the registration or things like that. What about when it comes to your car? So what are some of the legal issues that people can get into if there's a problem with it? It's not how they drive it, but it's a problem with the car. So similarly, things like unregistered vehicle trailers, things like that as well. And that's, that can be another example where, as you say, life admin's fallen away. Maybe they've updated the address and haven't got the paperwork or, um, you know, they've just a bit shy of money or short of money this month and so they put it off a week. Those are offences, driving an uninsured motor vehicle and driving an unregistered motor vehicle. Um, and as I said, they, they do actually end up on your criminal record if you're convicted of them. So there's things like that. But there's also things like people say often, and, oh, so-and-so had their car defected. You know, the, the rims are too big or the there's uh, only one mirror, for example. You know, there's certain rules around things like that that people need to be aware of as well. And just having your car in a generally well-conditioned state. What about modifications that people might mm. make to a car? And full disclaimer, this is not something I'm interested in. I drive like a <laughs> 17-year-old Yaris, probably struggles to break like 70 k's an hour on the highway. But... I'm perhaps the exception in that. And I know that some people like to have a car that can, you know, get up some speed. Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, the first thing I think when I see those cars really is that it's just an attractant for police. You know, you you can hear a car hooning down the street. And I, my immediate thought as a defence lawyer is <laughs> that's just asking for attention, really. Certainly there's legal modifications, but there are some that aren't. And there's really strict rules around that. You know, we'd be here all day if we were talking about the heights that you can lift your car to or the size of the tyres, the rims you can have, you know, the amount of space underneath the guard, et cetera, et cetera. But there are things like that. And, you know, once a police officer, generally speaking, finds one, they're going to continue to look for more. And, you know, you, you can become an easy target in those circumstances. So I think just really make sure that you're clarifying where you're getting your information from before you're spending a lot of money on modifications. The other thing around that, though, is when people do modifications, for example, car lifts or put really large rim tyres on, especially on cars like four-wheel drives with a lift kit, it can Um, affect the calibration of the speedometer. So there's been examples in the past where someone might have had their cruise control set at, say, 85 in the 90 zone, but they're actually caught for speeding. And that's because of the calibration as a result of the lift in the tyres. So it's also important if people are going to modify their car that they take it to the mechanic and get the speedometer calibrated to avoid any really simple issues, you know, that might be the difference between someone losing their license, you know, one speeding offence. So that's a really good tip for people who do want to modify cars is just always check the speedometer calibration. 
One other question that I had about speeding, and I have heard this since like I first got my license Mm -hmm. and I have probably believed it's true. And I want to see if this is just a total myth. Is there any merit in the 10% speed limit rule. So do you know what I'm talking about with that? I know what you that? mean. So if you're speeding at 10% or under over the speed limit, so like 88 in the 80 zone. It's gravy. It's, it's fine. doesn't matter. Oh, I would love to say that that's true. But unfortunately, the general rule is no, that's not true. You might be lucky and get a, a lenient officer or a generous um, police officer, but the usual rule is no, the speed limit and under. So Sorry. 1K over could still be... I mean, surely <laughs> there's some grace period, but ultimately the law says that speed and under is the limit. Yeah, so technically if you are over the speed limit by any amount, then you can be charged for it. That's right. And there is a range of demerit points that are applicable for how far over the speed limit you're travelling. So you could simply get one demerit point for something like 10 kilometres and under, you know, right up to much, much more than that. What about the opposite? Is there ever any penalty if you go too far under the speed limit? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I can't say I've ever seen anyone be charged with an offence for driving too slowly. (laughs) Um, Because it can be, like, it can cause problems. But that's the thing. So you could be considered to be, like, a hazard on the road. And certainly if there's a police officer around doing road patrols, you might be pulled over for that. And certainly a lot of attention might be drawn to you because of that. The obvious example is the learner on the highway doing, you know, 30 kilometres less than the speed limit and all the traffic's going around them. But when you've got a normal license, or I should say a full license, and you're going far too slow, then yeah, you you could be, in fact, more of a hazard than if you were doing the actual speed limit. So just be mindful of that. But I haven't seen any offences as such, but you could certainly be pulled over and asked a couple of questions by the police, definitely. This is never something that would happen to me because I failed my (laughs) driving test when I was 17 for speeding. I lost points for actually going too slow. See, there you go. (laughs) I was so scared of speeding that I went far too slow and I almost didn't get my (laughs) licence. Well, see, this actually leads me into another question I had about breaking road rules. So I failed my driving test because I was speeding Mm -hmm. and I tried to argue a Mm defence at the RTA. Um, So you can see why I didn't become a lawyer because I obviously wasn't very (laughs) successful at it, Uh, which was that I'd said you had told me to turn left at this corner Mm -hmm. and there was a van in the lane it was blocking my way and I couldn't move change lanes Mm -hmm. so I had to speed up to To get around to get around the van sure and they were like no you should have just said it wasn't safe and not made the turn I was like well that wasn't communicated at the time (laughs) anyway I'm nervous (laughs) but are there ever times when you are allowed to break road rules and obviously like my driving test I will admit now with the passing of time not a great example and a less (laughs) a teachable moment but what about times when there are genuine emergencies and people are breaking rules like is that ever okay so a perfect example of that is somebody who's speeding and he's being caught speeding uh let's say by a speed camera um but they can prove that they were speeding in order to take their child or their spouse or somebody to a hospital and they were in urgent need of medical care that person would still be charged 
especially if it was by a camera, but they might be able to fight that in court and explain the circumstances and seek leniency. So they would have to plead guilty, admit the offending, but seek leniency. There's some circumstances of mitigation. They would have to have pretty strong evidence though that at that time, this person needed to get somewhere incredibly fast and there was no other way of getting them there. But you can opt to um, have the matter heard in court. It's called a court election. It does expose you to higher penalties, a higher maximum fine, and in some circumstances, disqualification or a higher disqualification. But that's really the only way to actually fight for your cause effectively and seek leniency. And in some circumstances, you might have that matter dismissed in its entirety. I want to ask about the differences between negligent driving and dangerous driving, because they're often phrases that you might Mm. see in media reports when people get caught and in very serious instances. But what is the difference between those two? Yeah, it can be a little bit tricky to understand that. So negligent driving is by law considered to be driving without due care and attention that's reasonably expected of the ordinary prudent driver. Now, that just sounds like a lot of legal mumbo jumbo, really. <laughs> Which is what we break down on the show. So, <laughs> exactly. Lucky I'm here to read the legislation for you. <laughs> so, what that really means is that perhaps you're not paying enough attention as what you should have been, or something's distracted you, and then as a result of that distraction, something else has happened. So, f- An example of that might be where you're entering a roadway or a road from a driveway. You have a quick look in both directions. You enter onto the road, but you actually hit a car. That could be considered negligent driving because the police and the the prosecution might suggest that you should have looked or you should have been able to see that car coming before you pulled out onto the road. And if you're a little bit unsure, you should have waited and looked again. That's negligent driving as such, whereas dangerous driving is where you're pretty much doing something wrong or illegal from the start. So, for example, you might be under the influence of alcohol or a drug, or you're speeding, or you're driving in a really dangerous manner. An example might be drinking too much, being over the limit and speeding, you know, 20 or 30 kilometres over the speed limit in an 80 zone, for example, or weaving in and out of traffic in a residential street doing 80 kilometres and you've got alcohol higher than the legal limit. Okay, there's some degree of intention there. Now, both of these offences are considered serious, it goes without saying that dangerous driving is considered more serious because there is that intentional aspect there. Both of them carry potential loss of licences depending on the severity of what's happened. So again, much like we are talking about the penalties for speeding earlier, the penalties for both negligent driving and dangerous driving increase. And that is when there is either an injury cause, so grievous bodily harm, which is really serious injury, okay, or actually death. So dangerous driving causing death would be the most serious of those. Negligent driving, it can be charged just simply as negligent driving, and that's a fine-only offence, meaning that there's a monetary penalty. But the other types of negligent driving and dangerous driving do actually carry maximum penalties of imprisonment. Now, that's very daunting and it sounds really serious, which it is, but those maximum penalties are reserved for the most serious examples of those driving incidents. 
and it's not necessarily what everyone gets. There are many, many steps that a court must take before sending someone into custody. But that just shows the seriousness with which the parliament sees these types of driving offences because, you know, we are driving weapons in some circumstances, really dangerous objects, and we need to, the parliament thinks that us as drivers need to be made aware of that. Do you have any examples of sort of outrageous excuses that you've heard or overheard as to why someone has driven badly or dangerously? Yeah, that's really interesting. People do funny, funny things. I've seen a car used as a weapon where it was a relationship breakdown and somebody damaged the other party's car with a knife and slashed the tires. And then that car was driven into another car and like kind of rampaged the car. But some common examples really are, I didn't know the speed limit, which doesn't cut it, unfortunately. (laughs) Just going to be like, doesn't cut it, doesn't cut it. Maybe could cut it, but that one, definitely no. (laughs) (laughs) That one, definitely no. Didn't know the speed limit. Um, I didn't know I was speeding. That one comes up far more than what you would think it would. Because, I mean, generally, you would know if you were speeding. It's right there. It's right (laughs) there in front of you. I mean, sure, especially if the traffic's moving and you're all kind of doing, you know, you might be doing 120 when you should be doing 110. But the law says that you should know, right? I've had people tell me that they didn't know they were doing 145 in the 90 zone. You know, I mean... Did you though? (laughs) That's very fast. Very fast. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, goes without saying that excuse doesn't cut it. Other examples of crazy excuses though. I mean, people come up with some funny things. I had to get something from the back for my child. I wasn't looking, you know, they were caught with the mobile phone offense or mobile phone in their hand. And the excuse is, oh, I had to text my partner or the boss called me or something. (laughs) The group chat was popping off. The group chat wasn't on mute. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, there's a range of things, but look, the majority of them just don't cut it. When it comes to using a phone when driving, and obviously a lot of people do use their phone now, like with Google Maps and things like that. What are some rules about using a phone in a car? Like, is there anything, like, is it a little bit murky? that Because a lot of us do use Google Maps in a phone, but you might have like, I put, yes. it, put it somewhere so I'm not touching it. Is there anything that people should know about? Yes. So the law says that you can use a mobile phone for GPS or auditory purposes. So music. Podcasts. Podcasts, for example, this one. Um, while it is in an approved holder and you're driving. That doesn't mean that you can type in the address while you're at the traffic lights or text someone back while you're at the traffic lights. Really what it means is that even if it's in the holder, you still shouldn't be touching it. Lots of people, and I'm sure you or listeners alike, would have pulled up to a traffic lights and someone's there texting on their phone, but it's not in their hand, it's in a holder. But I mean, That is me. so that in itself if a police officer saw you then by definition of of use according to the law you would be using your phone even though it's in the the required holder so general advice for everyone is turn your maps on before you take your car out of park before you start moving at all Pick which songs you want to listen to or which podcast you want to listen to and do not touch it. doesn't matter if it's ringing or if people are texting, the group chat, whatever. 
just do not touch it because a lot of people get caught with that uh, where they've touched their phone or they're, they're using it for some other purpose other than music and GPS. What about phone calls? As long as you're not touching the screen or the phone to make the phone call, you can use things like, hey, Siri, and and get the phone to dial for you. As long as you're not actually touching the phone in any way, then you can use it, yeah, for phone calls, music, and for GPS, as long as you're not touching it and it's in its approved holder. No, that's very, very good advice. (laughs) Very good advice. One other area that I want to talk about is drink driving. First of all, I think most people who have driven for a fairly long period of time would have experience at being pulled over for a random breath check. Mm-hmm. Do people ever refuse those tests? And what, what can happen if you get pulled over and you want to refuse the test? Right. So, yes, people do refuse the tests. And There's usually not a valid reason to refuse a test. In fact, you can be charged with refusing to submit to a breath test. When you do that, assuming that you're charged and you go before a court, which is where these offences go, the penalties that apply are equivalent of high-range drink driving or high-range PCA, which is prescribed concentration of alcohol. So because a police officer or once you're there, the court doesn't know exactly what reading you had, you are automatically put into the worst case scenario. Now, high range drink driving carries a really serious penalties. There's an automatic period of three years disqualification right off the bat once you're convicted. It can include, especially for Uh, second time or subsequent offenders, a period of imprisonment of up to 18 months as well as a fine. So it is treated really seriously. So it's really important, even if you do think you're over, that you do a breath test because if you don't, it's likely that the consequences will actually be worse for you. And what happens if somebody is pulled over on a random breath test and they are over the limit? What happens to to them after that? Do they have to do another test? Are they taken to the police station? What happens to the car? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question. So on the side of the road, you do the breath test where you usually count to 10. If it comes back as positive, then you would either be taken, you're right, back to the closest police station or sometimes the police have a police bus where they have the proper testing devices fitted into that bus. And you're then expected to do another breath test where you blow into a a different machine um, using a a really long pipe, kind of like a really long straw. And that does a, a much more accurate test. And that's the test that's relied upon as the the final test to actually determine whether you are or are not over the limit. If you are over the limit, it depends on the range. So we've got low range, mid range and high range PCA or prescribed concentrations of alcohol and there's the limits for each one. It depends on what category you fall into or what range will determine what happens next in terms of whether you are immediately suspended or whether you are given a court attendance notice or a penalty notice. Recently, the police have been empowered to give 
what's called a penalty notice for a low-range drink driving. In the past, they were always required to give a court attendance notice, meaning that the person would have to go to court and their matter would be dealt with by a magistrate. But because these matters are becoming so prevalent and taking up a lot of court time, one way to divert that is that an officer can give you a penalty notice, which is just like a speeding fine, really, with a particular amount on it. The trick with that, though, is people often don't know that once you pay that fine, that's not the end of it. The RMS can still suspend you and will suspend you for a period of three months. It might not be immediately, but ultimately you will receive a letter in the mail saying your license is going to be suspended as a result of the commission of the low-range drink driving offence between these particular dates. So it's really important, especially where this might be a first offence or it might be a really, really low reading, for example, 0.051, which I have seen, it's really important for those people to actually get legal advice because depending on their circumstances, it might actually benefit them to take the matter to court. Drink driving also seems to be another area where there are sort of certain myths that can be around (laughs) about different types of, you know, how long it, like certain amounts that people could drink in a given hour before driving. Do you often see people run into trouble thinking like, oh, but I only had, you know, I had two drinks, I took a break and I had one more, but it was over a few hours. So like I should have been fine. Or the, I stayed overnight on a couch and I drove home the next morning. Oh yeah. Lots of morning after offences, even for people that are at home, whether they be drinking at home the night before or they're back at home and the baby needs some milk. So they just shoot down to the the local shop to to grab a few things and they're over the limit. It's really tricky, to be honest, to have a hard and fast rule. In fact, I would just, I would go as far as saying there's no hard and fast rule. Obviously, it might not seem like the best option and it might not be practical, but ultimately, if you are drinking, then you really shouldn't be driving at all. You know, there is that old rule around sort of two drinks in the first hour and then one drink every hour after that. That's actually just for for blokes. Um, Apparently for girls, I know, get away (laughs) with so much stuff. Classic written for blokes. (laughs) So for girls, it's actually one drink in the first hour and then no more than one after that. But even that depends on the type of drink that you're having. It's one standard drink. You know, that's not very much. You know, if we're pouring our own wine, for example, or making ourselves <laughs> cocktails, there's definitely going to be more than one set of drink in that glass. So that's an important factor to consider. But also how frequently people drink, you know, what is their tolerance to alcohol? Did they consume food? I mean, there's a myth around that, you know, I'll have two beers and I'll have dinner and I'll be fine. That doesn't always work either. But the whole circumstances around it, there's no hard and fast rules which apply to one person. You know, you might be under the limit, I might be over and we've consumed the same amount. So as I said, it might not be the most practical and it might cause, you know, a few headaches having to pick up the car and whatnot. But it really is best just to not drive if you're drinking at all. In fact, it could cause less headaches. With drink driving, if you are pulled over and you've returned a positive reading... Can you ever dispute that reading? Yes, you definitely can. So in most circumstances or really in all circumstances, you should be offered a blood test. So if you don't think that your reading is actually that high or it shouldn't be that high based on what you've consumed, then you should definitely say yes to the blood test and you'll be taken to the hospital by the police to have your blood tested and then that reading is also taken into account as 
you're reading at the time. So you can definitely refute it. It's a little bit tricky after the fact though, if you don't get the blood test done and you then say, well, I think the machine was faulty or, you know, my reading just wasn't that high. It's very difficult to prove it in retrospect. So if you are concerned that your reading or the reading from the machine is far too high, then you should always get the blood test done. I want to also ask about the impact of low-level driving offences sort of on a person's future. You know, I know some of the offences you've talked about, you may not have a criminal conviction recorded, Mm. but if you do commit a low-level drink driving offence and there is something on your record, can that impact travel or things like that in the way that some other low-level offences can? Criminal offences can. That's right. So a lot of the driving-related or traffic-related matters, a conviction for that is actually seen as a criminal conviction. Now, if you are facing the court for some other offence, then these would kind of, you know, fall by the wayside and they wouldn't matter that much. But certainly in terms of people having a New South Wales police check, for example, um, these offences are disclosable for, for 10 years. It could also affect things like travel. Each country is usually different and There are some things to look out for when asking or or applying for visas and stuff like that. One thing is to look out for, have you been convicted as compared to have you been charged with an offence? Certainly for people who get the classic section 10 and have their matter dismissed, they haven't been convicted. But for people who have, it's really important to, to look at those questions and to think about what countries they're they're wanting to go to because, yeah, every country is slightly different with their restrictions. Another thing that I also want to ask that sort of touches on that a little bit, which is about travelling overseas, this is though looking more locally and interstate. So say I'm driving in Sydney, in the city, and I try and do like a hook turn like they do in Melbourne. And someone pulls me over being like, what on earth are you doing? (laughs) You've just (laughs) broken a whole bunch of rules. That's right. And I'm like, I'm doing a hook turn, like obviously. Would people be able to sort of use that as a as an explanation? I won't even say an excuse, as an explanation yes. for committing a Yeah, offense. they definitely could. And again, it would depend on the circumstances, but you definitely could. It's another matter where you'd have to elect to take it to court, more than likely, unless you were served with a court attendance notice. But you would also need to, to prove some things in terms of when you arrived here in Australia or if you're from overseas or simply from a different state and try to prove that that's not a law in the state or country that you're from. But it is something that's really common, especially in Sydney, certainly with the different cultures that we have and people coming here to study and to work. Unfortunately, a lot of people do get caught with traffic matters such as that that may not seem that serious, but it can cause them to have a really bad record and and accumulate demerit points very quickly because they're doing or committing small offences that are not offences in other places. If I get pulled over and there are, say, television cameras for Mm -hmm. something like the RBT show, Mm -hmm. can I ask not to be put on television? Well, my immediate thought is yes, definitely. You can (laughs) ask not to be recorded and not to be on the RBT primetime TV, definitely. (laughs) That's everyone's right (laughs) to not be on primetime. Is it ever an acceptable excuse to tell police repeatedly that you are just waiting for a mate. (laughs) Only if it's mate lawyers. (laughs) Um, 
No, I don't think so. It depends on the circumstance, but probably not going to fly. Well, there obviously is a lot of things that people need to consider before they get behind the wheel of a car. But Michaela, you have been both a friend to the show with all of your expertise (laughs) and have provided some really great advice about when people should see a lawyer and what they should look out for in terms of their rights and most importantly, their responsibilities on the road. So thank you so much for coming into Lawfully Explained. Thank you so much for having me. I hope our audience can get something out of it. Lawfully Explained is a listener production brought to you in partnership with the Law Society of New South Wales. Hosted by me, Amy Dale. The Law Society's producer is Francisco Silva. Our audio is by Kelly Fulston. The executive producer is Todd Stevens, And the producer is Thomas Thexton. Listener.